1: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at LetItRollCast and check out our website at Podcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan talk about the 2011 Electric Daisy Carnival EDMs run atop the pop charts and the rise of dubstep. Email us at letterallpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll, or shall I say techno roll. That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's. The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, and this week, Ryan, it's going to conquer America.
2: Yeah, there's so much going on in this chapter. I honestly feel like... There should have been just a book that was 2010 onwards because everything is just mashed into this chapter and it could you could spend four or five chapters on this alone. And we've we've broken out multiple parts of this story into our own chapters from from other books and stuff like that, like all the dubstep stuff uh, right up until it turns into bro step we've covered before. So anybody who really wants a deep dive into that, we've got like two dubstep episodes already out there somewhere.
0: Yep, yep, From the Simon Reynolds series. and. The topic or the party of this week's uh, episode is the Electric Daisy Carnival from Las Vegas, Nevada, June 24th to 26, 2011. But we don't start at 2011, we start in 2007 with the Electric Daisy Carnival at LA Coliseum in June of 2007. And this is Pasquale Rotella's event. We've heard from him many times in this book. Although Matos also brings back another character from the past, from previous chapters, and Gary Richards, who had actually named the Electric Daisy Carnival way back in like 91 or 92 when he was co-promoting parties uh, with Rotella and others. Um, But Rotella had taken it and run with it. Richards at this point hadn't promoted a party in like 15 years, I think was the number they threw out there. Yeah, something Um, like that. And Rotella's got the Electric Daisy Carnival, and he's also got the Nocturnal Wonderland. That's his main event. That that was being promoted at the Empire Polo Grounds. And that drew 40,000 people in 2007. Um, and he hired Bunny from Rabbit in the Moon as the creative director in 2008. Also hired... Velo Verkhaus, who did the projection mapping and uh, computer graphics for Rabbit and the Moon. And so really up to the show at both Electric Daisy Carnival and Nocturnal Wonderland. In 2009, he expanded Electric Daisy Carnival to two nights. And in 2010, he expanded it to Denver, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Dallas, as well as Los Angeles.
2: Yeah, this is kind of where Insomniac goes from being your your typical rave or massive promoter into like a, a next level entity that's that's doing things that have never really been done before in North America and and it really shapes the future of the scene both in North America and worldwide.
0: Yeah, and his success gets Gary Richards intrigued and he comes back into promotion in 2007 in December of 2007 with the hard event. And he books Steve Aoki, Peaches, and Justice. So the way that's described is kind of a diss on the music that Rotella was picking for EDC up to that point, and that and that Richards is updating it with Aoki, who's kind of become the king of the LA post-electro clash scene. Is that a good way to describe it? Well, I mean, just kind of the celebro-electro sound. There you go. And, and also Peaches coming straight out of the New York electro class scene and then justice who's um i want to call proto bro step but that's not really fair is it
2: yeah no justice really just took that french touch like french electro sound and turned it up to 11 added in a whole bunch of like glam rock to it and uh, yeah. and yeah just kind of set the because w- when you're talking about bro step and you're talking about dubstep electro electro and bro step have more in common with each other than, than is usually kind of acknowledged. When you listen to that first Skrillex EP, My Name is Skrillex, those tracks aren't even really trying to be dubstep. They're more electro, but the wobble just kind of steps in. And once the wobble takes over, it leans more into brostep than it does electro. But I mean, they're, they're right mashed together. This era is all about how the dubstep wobble infected electro and, and
0: basically turned
2: into these big room EDM bangers.
0: And EDM also infects the pop charts in this time, and and Matos does sort of a a run-through of how, quote, pop radio sounded more and more like a vintage anthems compilation with some reality TV stars sprinkled on top. Reality TV stars sprinkled on top. That's kind of harsh on Rihanna and Pitbull, don't you think?
2: Well, I mean, all these songs ended up on the soundtrack for uh, for Jersey Shore and and basically everything else that was on MTV. This was when MTV basically completely abandoned the music video and switched over to reality television. And and this music was kind of the soundtrack for all of that garbage.
0: Ah, I see that. Got to tag you for the value value judgment there with the garbage comment. But um, but this stuff was big. It was unavoidable. He, he shouts out uh, Rihanna's S.O.S. from 2006, which was electro and based on Soft Cell's classic Tainted Love synth pop hit from the early 80s, um, which in turn was a cover of an old Northern Soul song from the 60s. Also, uh, Rihanna had uh, good luck with We Found Love, partnered with Calvin Harris. That went to number one in 2012. This era kind of kicks off with Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling in 2009, produced by David Guetta, becomes the biggest selling song in iTunes history. Uh, then you also get uh, Pitbull featuring Nia, Nayer and Afrojack, Give Me Everything, number one in 2011. Um, and then you've got LMFAO, the grandsons of Barry Gordy of Motown fame with Party Rock Anthem and Sexy and I Know It uh, with 2011. Mato shouts out the epic trance Siths, a la the late 90s, all over those tracks. And then Britney Spears also had Tell the World Ends, and Rihanna had The Only Girl in the World. Um, so, yeah, it's just like all of a sudden all these pop performers switched up their backgrounds to uh, to be EDM. It was it a yeah, like I mean, clear sea change.
2: There, there was definitely like this period of time where all of a sudden it's more acceptable for pop artists to just go out and collaborate and, and find, find collaborators that they're interested in working with. It's not always studio-led and guys like uh, David Guetta and uh, Afrojack – all wanted in on this thing and found artists that were willing to work with them. And the tracks that came out were just, just massive, massive success. Uh, because this is the first time they kind of mentioned this a bit later in the chapter, how David Guetta was trying to get his American label to pay attention to him and, and do stuff. And they're like, you know, there's no market for anything. They refused to come to electric Daisy carnival. Cause they were just like, Oh, what's the point? And he's like, well, there's 100,000 people here. So these, these are these artists kind of like taking, taking the bull by the horns and pushing their music into the mainstream where it's finally kind of front and center. And America is just ready for it. They're primed and, and the new sound just takes off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Diplo is one producer that Matos gives a shout out. Um, that's Tommy Wesley, Thomas Wesley Pence who Matos has managed to balance commercial success and critical acclaim. He produces the first two MIA albums, and Matos gives her real name, which I'd never seen before, Maya Arul Pregazam, which is quite the mouthful. Paper Planes uh, by MIA went to number four in 2008, produced by Diplo. And then you had a Pond the Floor by Major Lazer with Vibes Cartel. And Major laser is Diplo plus UK producer Switch, whose real name is Dave Taylor. Um, and this, Pond de becomes the basis for Beyonce's uh, Girls Run the World. And then um, Diplo also has success, success partnering with Afrojack for Chris Brown's Look at Me Now, featuring Lil Wayne and Busta Rhymes, which goes to number six in 2011. So, yeah just a glorious era of pop hits and let's go ahead and hear our first track this is Binny the third versus dj dinesh london Benny the third versus DJ Dinesh London. Why'd you pick this one?
2: Well, we're just about to get into UK dubstep. There was so much to jam in here into this episode. I decided I didn't want to even really touch on the Americanized dubstep because we all know what it sounds like, but uh, you know, to jump back to 2003 to 2006, I figured people might want a bit of a, of a, of a, of a taste of, of, what original UK dubstep sounded like so they can put themselves kind of in the headspace for this next segment where we discuss where American dubstep kind of was birthed out of.
0: And that happens to be a radio show. The dubstep wars broadcast January 10th, 2006 Marianne Hobbs, a BBC programmer uh, dropped to the show she interviewed multiple DJs from Croydon, which was the hotbed of dubstep in South london um, Steve Goodman aka code nine was of the hyper dub label, was a guest on the show and they just kind of ran through a history of dubstep, which, as we talked about during the Simon Reynolds series comes out of the u k garage two step thing grime, the uh, hip hop variant from London is in the mix, and then that evolved into dubstep croydon's big apple record store was the hub um and then hatcha aka terry leonard clerk there and also dj thursdays at the velvet room at fwd um and then the tempo all-stars volume one inspired a ton of djs matos mentions jack dunning aka untold who switched from jungle to dubstep or drum and bass from dubstep and then This Dubstep Wars show is so big that the Dubstep Forum triples its membership in short order after it airs. And this is just one of those moments where I guess a massive American audience heard about the UK Dubstep scene, which frankly had been pretty obscure. This is a really unusual genre, and then it goes from this artsy backwater to frat boy, bro town, massive, massive success. It's really strange. And then we talk about Burial, aka Will Bevan, um, who had submitted demos to Steve Goodman, aka Code Nine, for the Hyperdub zine. Goodman ended up signing Burial to Hyperdub Records, and then Untrue, the 2007 Burial second album, uh, gets nominated for the Mercury Prize, it makes Pitchfork's annual top ten list, and that's you know after the Dubstep Wars show, and so it's it's part of Dubstep building up this head of steam and one of the reasons the dubstep was so successful in this period is it had a consistent 140 beats per minute tempo that if you tweaked the drums you could glue multiple styles together in a set so if you uh varied the drum programming you can have a tune that b- bumps along like deep house or you can give it some garage swagger or even match the pace of drum and bass so uh it kind of becomes the ultimate alchemy um style there for a minute and that djs it's very convenient for djs to mix in different styles were you able to mix it into your blend as a dj
2: yeah absolutely it's it's completely true 140 beats per minute was that magic number where you can pretty much mix this stuff into anything and it takes me back to the old uh rage days with uh fabio and groove rider where they were waiting for breakbeat to kind of catch up to house and techno and, and mixing it all together. And, uh, this, this dubstep stuff could kind of come in anywhere and it was a great opening set music and it just kind of continued to grow in intensity as that feedback happened where that where dub dubstep was getting played out more and more and people just kind of continued to up the intensity on it, which, made it get played more by djs which again just that feedback loop of it just continuing to grow until all of a sudden this weird kind of twitchy glitchy uh down tempo stuff started wobbling and raving pretty
0: hard and and it gets support from some of the all-timers like ricardo villalobos um gets gives prominent play to screams midnight request line in 2005 then he remixes shackleton's blood on my hands uh and that's that's a goer, and then in June t- 2007, screenplays to a packed house of 8,000 at Barcelona Sonar Festival. So it's um, yeah, it's blowing up. And then he talks about the Dub Police label and uh, Caspa, aka Gary McCann. And Rusko, a.k.a. Chris Mercer, were the founders of the Dub Police level, started it in 2006. And then tracks like Cockney Thug by, by Rusko in 2007 and Florida by Casper in 2008. That brings in the wobble in a big way, and um, it just gets over. They, he's got some quotes from Vivian Host of the Brooklyn label and party Trouble and Base who said, people didn't like dubstep for a long time. We pl- would play at our, at our parties, and people would just be like, huh? Until Rusko started releasing tunes. And then um, in August 2009, the Trouble and Bass has their third birthday party and book Binga and Scream, and there's a mosh pit. It was crazy, says Vivian Ho. So the New York hipsters have now uh, accepted um, dubstep. And, and then he also talks about how it got over in California, uh, John Dadzy, uh formerly Infiltrada, converts to dubstep from drum and bass. His his manager Danny Johnson was a, a driver in that, saw the commercial prospects there, and they cross promoted to the Steve Aoki crowd. and And we started having dubstep guests in 2008. By 2009, we couldn't afford them anymore. That tells you a lot. Like it, it just blew up, and the DJs asking prices were the um, one of the key measurements.
2: Yeah. One of the interesting things, you always kind of place a new genre into kind of a, a room with, with the other music that kind of sits with and and used to be kind of jungle drum and bass breaks all in the same room. And then dubstep kind of was added in there with it. And then dubstep started getting so big that it kind of dubstep got its own room and then dubstep started getting their own parties. And then all of a sudden there was just an entire... Scene, which is just now generally known as the bass scene so dubstep uh can just grew from this small seed of, of being a genre that a dj might play in a room with a bunch of other stuff to 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 picking at some of the best talent from all of the other kind of broken beat sounds to to just completely taking over in in a huge way and still being now i'd say like comparable to like Maybe not the house scene, but but definitely definitely it's it's its own massive scene with its own group of people, and it just floats along. And people just travel and go to all these base events now, so that's that's basically where dubstep ended up.
0: And then Matos takes a a, a curve in his narrative to rope in some of the stragglers that that are going to play a role in this next era, and he stops off at Burning Man which I guess he hasn't talked about Burning Man up to this point, but because he, he gives a whole capsule history, how it started at Baker Beach in the Bay Area in 1986, moved to Black Rock Desert in Nevada in 1990, uh, and it was basically sort of a hippie fest, rock fest, but it had a raver camp, a.k.a. a raver ghetto, and kind of an unfortunate statement for their status in the scene was, in 1996, two ravers are camping and a run over and killed by somebody from the bigger burning man party who drove through the raver camp um but john kelly's style of desert breaks dominated the rave era with a little bit of trip hop and turntablism in the mix but then glitch hop starts being a factor at burning man i they cite Prevue 73's Vocal Studies and Uprock Narratives album from 2001 uh, kind of introduced the glitch hop thing. And then Bass Nectar, a.k.a. Lauren Ashton, is the pivotal figure who started out making cool bleep bloops to smoke weed to, but then evolved into face-melting mid-range bass melodies and catastrophic builds and drops. So Bass Nectar is a big factor in the evolution of dubstep into brostep by way of burning, man, is that a fair?
2: yeah, I mean again, like when when we're talking about. Uh, dubstep dubstep kind of evolves out of just the the uh, the restrictions of what dubstep means even like new dubstep american dubstep and just becomes this generalized genre called bass where you can kind of throw everything in there all the glitch hop that you want so long as it's got that big that big growly bass or the wobble or whatever else like that then it can then it can sit in that bass family like even the uh, kind of uh, drum and bass and jungle end up kind of sitting inside bass underneath the, the umbrella of bass now and it's it's when when things got reorganized and bass became kind of this thing and bass nectar was kind of sitting up at the top until he was revealed to be a, a sexual creep as many bass uh djs end up being revealed to be Ouch. But- yeah that uh but yeah the, i i think the reason that burning man doesn't get mentioned a lot is because it really isn't uh aff- affiliated with rave all that much as they mentioned there are ravers that go to burning man but uh there was uh, considering the fact that there were so many dance stages uh rave never really got too deep into burning man until bass music kind of came in and started to take over there. And now, now it's a bit more accepted. You've got a lot of melodic techno stuff going on there as well. A lot of really mature kind of, uh, chin scratching, uh, late night booze, drinking music going on there as well. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's very, very accurate and very apropos that the, the rave camp was the raver ghetto and, and that terrible things happened there to them because it was never really our scene. Yeah.
0: And, and listening, you know, uh, for the to prep for this episode the bass wobble really strikes me it's this great mid-range sound that kind of combines the attack of the electric guitar and the attack of scratching on turntables so it kind of reconnects a lot of things and lets djs do both rock tricks and hip-hop tricks in, in this new way but let's hear our next track this is the disco biscuits home again the disco biscuits home again and perfectly timed for you to segue us into our next bit
2: yeah absolutely i mean uh th- this chapter is all about trying to to thread things that that weren't really rave that were starting to turn into rave things like burning man not really being that ravey or edm related but suddenly becoming that with the introduction of 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 bass and some of this newer techno stuff and then you've got the disco biscuits representing uh, kind of the next generation of fish slash uh, Grateful Dead jam bands, and they're integrating Raven in there. And the reason I picked that track is because it's so very obviously like a Grateful Dead homage, but with a lot of uh, little bleeps and bloops. So I thought it was a perfect, hilarious kind of introduction to the sound of Jamtronica as they so dismissively <laughs> refer to it.
0: <laughs> and that is, yeah, pretty much the perfect track. That's exactly what I had imagined Disco Biscuits would sound like, and and that definitely satisfies. They started their own uh, festival, Camp Bisco, started in 1999 for 500 people. By 2002, they're bringing in rave staples like Alex Patterson of the Orb, DJ DB, and Scott Hardkiss of the Hardkiss Brothers, and then um, you know people like Ben Silver, A.K. Orchid Lounge debut. At Camp Bisco in 2003, by which time they're drawing in 5,000 people, um, and that kickstarts Orchid lounge career. And then by 2011, they draw almost 20,000 people. In 2013, they scale back and cap the attendance at 13,000, but almost all the acts are EDM. And then um, they pull the plug on Camp Bisco. I don't know if they've come back into action. Yeah, since.
2: it's it's back. It's back.
0: Uh, good, 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 good to know. And, uh, but it's just part of a trend of EDM kind of taking over the jam band circuit. Also, he mentions uh, STS9, the Sound Tribe Sector 9, which is another one of these sort of crusty, spiral, tribe ish sort of fish, um, incredible string cheese incident sort of agglomerations. Um, and then then he has a little sideline to talk about Molly, which is. Uh, our old friend mdma but has uh, experiencing a, a a second coming in powder form rather than pressed into pills which the kids for some reason things seem to think is better i guess he had to throw that in there to keep the drug lingo up to date but it was kind of a
2: well, I mean, it's such an important kind of element. It was, uh, we, we've kind of, the, this, the book kind of mentions when ecstasy became this big thing. And, you know, as much as maybe some people don't want to admit it, ecstasy was the big driving factor in the, in the summer of love with the acid house in the UK and a big factor in, in, in raves in America and why the vibe was the way that it was. And Molly was the second coming of, of ecstasy. And uh, I remember everybody being so much more into it because with a pressed pill, you never knew what you were going to get. And especially in America, uh that was bad news because God knows, like they could put some really crude, mean stuff in there. So to have a bag of MDMA, which is basically crystallized, crystallized powder, uh made everybody feel a lot, a lot safer about what they were taking for some reason. They they didn't they didn't recognize that there was just as much of an opportunity for shenaniganry in that. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, uh, t- to me, I've always been of the opinion that that the best way to take ecstasy is in a pill when it's mixed in with a couple other things, a little upper, a little psychedelic, a little this, a little that. Good pressed pills are a melange of, of, of carefully curated uh, things, but obviously that's not always going to be the case. So, yeah, yeah. Molly just became this this sensation because, uh, people were just going around dipping their fingers into these bags of powdered crystal and just either, uh, rubbing it up in their gums or just swallowing it or parachuting it, putting it in little pieces of paper and, uh, and turning them into their own little bombs, all sorts of ways to take it. So it was kind of like, uh, the fun dip of the drug world for, for those years.
0: Well, thank you for that informative. And, uh, yeah, not that I did it a bunch or anything. <laughs> Yeah, the stuff's travel, kids. Stay away. Stay away. And then, and then he uh, segues over to Seattle. Talks about the Decibel Festival. Sean Horton was booking that. Uh, it's kind of he compares it to the mutech uh, event in Montreal says it's mutech style producer performers at the core. I guess that's opposed to jam bands or performers like peaches and Spooner Fisher. Um, In 2007, they had the Simeon mobile disco, which is a spin-off Simeon, the indie pop group that had a big EDM hit in collaboration with justice. And now they, by this point they had spun off into a purely EDM group, Simeon mobile disco also had Diplo at that show in 2008 they had the glitch mob and then dead mouse aka Joel Zimmerman of Toronto and he's kind of the reason for this little segment because this is his first north uh, west show in the pacific northwest plays at 650 people at numo's on friday night in 2008 and then they get into dead mouse and somebody calls him a case study in really successful branding that and then by two, 2010 he's playing at the Olympics uh, in 2011 he's the house DJ at the MTV Music Awards by 2011 his asking price is $100,000 a show uh, he's playing with Motley Crue's Tommy Lee at the Ultra Music Festival in 2011 plays the House of Blues at Disney World in 2011 and Disney's executives are celebrating quote the coolest thing to happen to Mickey Mouse in 40 years because Dead Mouse of course wears the giant head although it's not strictly Mickey Mouse it's just a mouse and and Mattos contrast you know
2: disney disney owns all mouse related anything now
0: <laughs> of course of course as as they should as they should and Matos contrast this with their uh overreaction to early edm or rave days posters in the early 90s in la that used mickey mouse profanely in many instances and and disney you know of course chased them after with the cease and desist orders and and such like uh and then it talks about the decibel festival 2009 which featured benga box cutter casper marianne hobbs mala martin in type and pinch all dubsteppers plus mad professor for historical balance the great uk reggae producer the track of the year was hyfe mango by joy orbison joy orbison aka peter o'grady um and then there's another split, and then this is where it's clear by 2009 that dubstep is going to be big, 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 and some people, as, as this scene is just want to do, some people step back from the brink and others go full big room all the way. And some people, um, like Code 9 and Scream, who were in dubstep from the beginning, pull back, and that totally makes sense. It, it, was, a, it was an underground scene to begin with and then becomes this possibly the most overblown scene since Grunge.
2: Yeah, the the explosion that happens is both the best and worst thing to ever happen to electronic dance music, because all of a sudden you have all this attention and you have all this possibility for these great hits and and adulation and fame and riches and everything else like that. But at the same time, there's this commercial, uh, this commercial influence to dumb all the music down, make it bigger, make it simpler, uh, put a big hook in it, get Rihanna on the lyrics just uh, and, and, you know. It, it got very dumb for, for 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 a big chunk of it, and uh, you know a lot of the the biggest stuff was the dumbest so uh, there was when when you look back on all of the really interesting dubstep that was being made from two thousand and three up to like two thousand and eight versus you know when things go fully bro step there 's nothing wrong with brostep I love my bro step, I love my death step, which is like two two to three steps further than bro step, and I love all of the really weird kind of stuff that 's come out of you know, how extreme that the genre went, but, you know, the guys that were making this stuff in 2006, there's no, it's not shocking that they were horrified by what this thing was becoming, because it was a total bastardization of what they were working on, which in itself was a bastardization of, uh, you know, original dub reggae. So the, the continuation of bastardization down through history
0: yeah it's 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 just another split like we saw when acid house split off into hardcore or intelligent dance music or uh you had drum and bass uh splitting off into intelligent drum and bass minimal techno over and over again this dynamic happens but let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors And when we come back we'll talk about skrillex
3: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
0: And as promised, now is the time when we talk about Skrillex, a.k.a. Sonny Moore. Matos introduces him by way of Craig Coleman, who's an Atlantic Records exec, gives Coleman's bio. Coleman had founded Big Beat Records in 1987 at age 22, sold it to Atlantic in 1991, became an executive in good standard Atlantic uh for the next 20 years, but then in 2010 reactivates his big beat records, has a launch party at the Winter Music Conference in Miami, and Sonny Moore, a.k.a. Skrillex, is at the bottom of the bill doing his first DJ gig. Uh, Sonny had been a singer in the Screamo band from first to last, blew out his voice doing that, so then he, he, as one does, moves on to Brostep. Coleman met him and immediately signed him after listening to what was on his laptop for a couple hours, just gobbled him right up. The My Name is Skrillex EP drops in June 2010. Deadmau5 immediately posted it to his Facebook page, and Skrillex Skrillex instantly becomes the face of dubstep. And what a face it is.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because that that My Name is Skrillex is really a fusion of electro and dubstep, and it really sets the the tenor for what the festival sound, the hard electronic dance music festival music sound, is going to be for the next five to ten years and, uh, you know, people give Skrillex a lot of hate, but it's funny, as soon as the sound, uh, that he kind of pioneered in bro step got tired, he, he just kept on evolving and the stuff that he's been doing, uh, even up to now is, is really fascinating and well produced. And I feel like he's trying to be more of a Diplo where, while he has all of this commercial success, well, you know, even not even commercial success. Haven't we talked about the fact that no Skrillex album has ever hit platinum?
0: That's true. That's true. I do believe we've mentioned that. And and he's an interesting contrast to dead mouse who I don't think you could say has prioritized artistic development or is that unfair?
2: Well, I mean, dead mouse is just, it's really, he's an interesting character because he's one of those guys that's a trance dude and he was put in the progressive house, uh, un- under the label of progressive house just because of the label that he was releasing was, was releasing nothing but progressive house. So he kind of, reformulated trance music for festivals as well and then he was very smart at teaming up with a number of really good producers and starting to make those really hooky pop songs but you know the, the thing that I appreciate about Dead Mouse is that he never sold his sound out. Tiesto, the Tiesto of now who makes EDM music uh, you couldn't even tell that that's Tiësto. A Tiësto track you hear it. You, you don't, there's no, there's no remaining ounce of Tiësto from the '90s and 2000s when he was a trance god. He sold all that out to get rid of it. While while Dead Mouse is still Dead Mouse from 2006 onwards, all of his stuff still holds on to the essence of who he is, but he will still managed to step into the commercial realm and release a hit that that, that is not only uh, sonically really well put together, but also palatable for the masses.
0: <laughs> nicely said. Nicely said. And then Matos uh, takes us back to Miami. We mentioned it for the Skrillex debut. And he talks about the He's comparing the Winter Music Conference, which was, you know, the Business Insider thing. It's doing like 3,700 people by 2010. But the Ultra Music Festival that we talked about last week that sprang up in its wake was more aimed at millennial kids. And by 2010, it's hitting 100,000 visitors for the second year in a row. And then in 2011 a Music Conference announces its dates for the next year, or in 2010 they announced their 2011 dates. They're planning to go two weeks earlier than usual, but the Ultra Music Festival stayed put and and happened later and expanded to three days. Ultra 2011 draws 150,000 people, and by 2012 WMC has to expand to nine days so that the last three will coincide with the later Ultra and, quote, Nobody questioned who'd won. So, and this is kind of a theme in this chapter of the old guard and the dance insiders kind of been just brutally pushed aside by um, the new kids in their masses.
2: Yeah, if you weren't willing to roll with what was what was happening, you were going to be left behind. And that's one thing you got to give to Pascal Rotella and and Insomniac is that they moved forward with the times. They weren't, you know, Pascal was around since like 1993 doing the old school thing, but he he rolled with the times and uh, he kept up with what the kids were interested in and it gave them what they wanted. And therefore he's still around today. And he's now probably the, the most important rave promoter in North America.
0: Yeah. And, and Montez talks about how, you know, there's a coalition of forces that, it, and he lumps in CineSpace style hard electro. that's Steve Aoki's club in LA, West Coast festival sired, rise of dubstep so dubstep's getting big at these west coast festivals the increasingly edm heavy pop hip-hop r&b and rock charts and the clean line womp of younger european producers um, which he doesn't mention but i assume he's talking about people like Avicii and calvin harris
2: uh yeah maybe maybe i mean there's 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 so many guys that could apply to but yeah i think think probably it's safe to say
0: okay and um and then the increasing increasing self marginalization of EDM's artier wing. So, yeah, stuff like minimal house and micro house and you know all the artsy fartsy stuff is is painting itself into a corner, happily while um, everybody else gets on with the big 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 parties. And then he talks about how EDM replaced rave and the terminology of promoters. And that's just something they learned the hard way is that raves was associated with arrests, the DEA overdoses, ambulances, stuff like that. EDM is this new festivals and shiny and bright and money and healthy and safe. So it
2: didn't have 25 years of negative connotation attached to it. So it was definitely time for a rebrand and it was very smart of the people to do it. When I was throwing raves, we never said the word rave when we were talking to a to a to a venue owner or to basically anybody any anybody in a position of authority. You never said the word rave. It was an all-night non-alcoholic dance party sometimes you for youth. Sometimes you mention the youth.
0: <laughs> and so then he talks about Las Vegas and and he talks about how there there had sort of been an organic dance scene in the 90s but it was relatively feeble. It choked on itself by 1996 going out as Mato says in the usual way because promoters were calling the cops on each other um like 1996 desert moves event only drew a couple thousand people and vegas natives crystal method who we've mentioned in a few previous episodes they got nowhere until they left vegas for la and then and then got places but um, by the early 2000s, like the Palms Hotel featured Paul Oakenfold. That was a turning point for mainstream acceptance of EDM. That was in 2008 in Vegas. And um, it's, you know, by, ni- by 2011, nine-tenths of America's top-grossing clubs were in Vegas. Uh, Afrojack's got a residency at the Wynn, and EDM DJs are being booked at the Cosmopolitan. So Vegas, very capitalistic city, and... Uh, they get it, and meanwhile, the last Electric Daisy Carnival in LA happened at the LA Coliseum in 2010, and a young girl Sasha Rodriguez unfortunately died of, uh, I guess, dehydration and overexertion from an overdose. And so they had 180,000 people over two days, but LA County didn't want any part of it. They, it all they saw was the negative aspect, and LA's loss as Vegas is Vegas's gain because Rotella moves EDC to Las Vegas and. The rest is history, frankly. There hadn't been a party this big in American history. That's pretty big doings.
2: Yeah, I mean, the whole thing with LA is that they never really wanted. Uh, none, of, no one in the government wanted to be in with these guys uh, doing any, having anything to do with the rave stuff. So uh, Rotello was was being forced to like basically you know, bend over backwards for every event to try and keep everything rolling. Uh, There was accusations that he was uh, paying off cops, accusations that he was paying off the L.A. Coliseum. And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter was, it's like he's not doing anything wrong. It's everybody on the other side demanding these kickbacks. And he's just uh, accommodating what he has to do in order to make these events happen. But finally, he gets pushed out of LA. They didn't want him to begin with after this death, he was persona non grata. So he moves to Las Vegas, and they welcome him with with open arms. And all of a sudden, he's got not only the support of of the city, but of of the venue, and the cops are saying, you know what, uh, this is no different than any other uh, roving tour event, and we're going to treat it like that so all of a sudden they have partners as opposed to uh you know somebody that's potentially going to come in and wreck their 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 whole event at any and in any given time and and you know we we've talked about the history of rave and why it didn't manage to survive for so for so many decades and it's because the government just kept on coming in and messing everything up and stepping all over any promoter who had a, a tiny amount of success and to have a base in las vegas where that wasn't the case anymore once they were able to get over the old style the old stuffy las vegas is a place for degenerate gamblers uh, back when degenerate gambling wasn't cool then all of us then all of a sudden uh, you know it was it was game on it was a whole
0: new era yep and let's hear one more track this is dead mouse move for me That was dead mouse move for me? Do we need to explain this? uh,
2: well, you know, I can give it a little uh explain uh, like uh, the, just giving you that dead mouse sound and the commercial sound that he kind of embraced from time to time he co-wrote that with cascade, who has the opening quote in this chapter about how winter music carnival uh winter music conference is dead ultra long live ultra and he calls it basically a guida bro fest i'm like cascade man like this is your fault (laughs) so you know like even the people in in the middle of the maelstrom causing all of this chaos and and churn uh are sometimes looking at what they've done and they're going oh my god
0: (laughs) yeah and there's a a lot to to question uh, because the success is going to be massive Two hundred thirty thousand fans over three days at the electric first electric daisy carnival in Vegas, sold out six weeks in advance. Tickets are $100 to $500, which seems cheap now, but at the time was really steep. Six stages. Crystal Method came back uh, homecoming to open up Friday evening, and we're stoked, um, even though that's not the sweetest gig. There's no Derek May style uh, pouting about it. They, they, they are just happy to be on the bill and here's an interesting sentence i wanted to ask you what what you think matos means here he said edc vegas was like edm as a whole was both the inverse and the net result of electro clash's gleeful fuck you to dance music orthodoxy and to the mashup becoming the dj's secret weapon what does that mean the both the inverse and the net result
2: Uh, I guess it's what happens when you stop taking dance music so seriously and just uh, enjoy it for quote unquote what it is. It allows you to kind of just give lowest denominator – uh, drops and, uh, you know, throw in some, some lyrics from, from, uh, Gwen Stefani or Red Hot Chili Peppers and, uh, and, and the people eat it up. So it, it's very much just a, a repudiation of the idea that this music has to come from somewhere and mean something and, and follow these rules of the grandfathers of, of, of yesterday. And now it, it's turned into full on throw a cake in my face, thrash, uh, music, you know, and there's a lot of people enjoyed that. And I enjoyed a lot of the stuff that was coming out at this point in time. But yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a big difference from, you know, a couple of years ago when people were saying the house was a soul thing. It was, you know, it was a very <laughs> personal thing. It's a ritual.
0: Yeah. And now it's basically top 40 or 80s AOR having its revenge. And he, he talks about how the DJs at, at Electric Daisy Carnival had effectively had a top 40 and that the same tracks are getting dropped and set after set. Adele's "Rolling in the Deep," which also serves as a Molly joke, "Rolling, get it, haha." Uh, Pitbull and Afro Jacks, uh, we already mentioned, "Give You Everything" with Neo and Nair. Uh, LMA, LMFAO's party rock anthem a staple but also had these rock classics like you mentioned red hot chili peppers outside from the year 2000 white stripes seven nation army blur song two and and says this was a whole new underground an unblinking ritualistic celebration of music you've been able to just turn on the radio and hear every single day for decades um this was something that had gone on for years but only now was non-niche media paying attention and the edm market in the u.s is now the number one glo- market globally because it's blown up and also the european market has kind of has kind of tanked so um you know it's the good with the bad he's also got a line about um some of this stuff is so poppy it would give uh brian adams uh, insulin shock so yeah it's just the classic what happens when you win um you know, just like rock and roll in the '60s wins at Woodstock, and and or rock wins, and and by the late '70s you've got Boston and Air Supply both under the umbrella of rock, and so EDM wins, and the big prize is. You know, Adele's the, the, the,
2: the loss of your soul that <laughs> was everybody was just afraid of the fact that we were going to lose our soul in the process because so many new people are coming in and the demand for this big room EDM, this soulless, simplistic pop oriented dance music threatened to just uh, just push everything else completely to the side and, and maybe ruin it. So the big question was, is this going to just are all these people going to come in, completely change the entire scene around? And then find something new and shiny in a year or two, walk away and the entire scene is going to collapse. And fortunately, there's been more of a uh, – every everything's kind of resettled into a new uh, homeostasis where you've got the ridiculous, uh, super poppy, big artists. But then you've got guys like uh, all the Dirty Bird guys are still around doing a bunch of really interesting kind of house and, and techno stuff. And they're they're appreciated if not as much as the David Guettas and the Tiestos. They're, they're still – headlining uh you know the second stage or whatever else like that and there's still a lot of really good deep interesting and uh well-produced music being made on top of just the you know the color by number edm stuff that, that that might be going on at electric daisy carnival on the main stage
0: And speaking of Electric Daisy Carnival, the main stage and DJ Testo, he was there, played uh, Kinetic Field Friday night, had the Flaming Lotus Girls uh, accompanying or performing while he was playing. And then Flash by Green Velvet is one of one of the staples of his set, the Nicky Romano remix, which was new at the time. And it's interesting that Matos says that Flash was the one older dance track to achieve the ubiquity of other side the Red Hot Chili Peppers song we just mentioned, that wasn't by Daft Punk, whose Discovery album had become EDM Sgt. Pepper. So I find it pretty satisfying. If, if one house track is going to make it through to the new generation, then it'd be Green Velvet, my favorite guy.
2: Yeah. And maybe it wasn't the only one like uh, anybody who's been in the scene for long enough knows that there's kind of like a, a 50 track classics box that, that samples can be lifted out of and put into tracks. And they're just timeless and they just keep on getting uh, rebuilt and reused and resampled and appearing in all sorts of interesting spots. But it is cool that that Flash, uh, being such a dirty, grimy track, uh, gets picked up and, and survives and gets put into this new commercial uh, prism and it still works.
0: Yep. And speaking of still working, Richie Hotton, of course, was at EDC. He performed two times, once as Plastic Man at the Cosmic Meadow on Friday night and then on Saturday night at the Circuit Grounds doing his DJ act. We talked about last week his his Mutech 2004 attempt at a Daft Punk style multimedia extravaganza had kind of flopped and wasn't technically ready. But by 2011, it's absolutely a well-oiled machine. Plastic Man goes off without a hitch. Uh, and then and just in time for plastic man's box set which had just been re-released or re-released his catalogs coming back out There also a best of cd and then mato says the next several years of houghton's career amounted to an extended pr campaign dedicated to reaching the younger heedless pop-leaning edm crowd from the more entrenched underground so houghton's basically having to tell these kids hey hey listen to me i'm i'm the old guy that that matters but also well, not there. just
2: him. He was also very much pushing everybody else. Like he was, he was yeah. very much about trying to like teach the history, so that that again, that uh, everybody was waiting for the great collapse, and 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 the big hope was that we could we could teach enough of these kids about what was going on outside of the bright lights of uh, of the speedway. And show them that there's an underground that, that's worth checking out. There's history that's worth checking out, and uh, you know uh, you need proselytizers like that. And it was it's cool that he was doing it, even as he was getting getting kind of crapped on for you know just being plastic man.
0: Yeah, and and also by 2008 he's a very successful businessman. He had sold Final Scratch to Native Instruments, a beatport which he started with John Aquaviva, very successful. So all's well in Richie Houghton land. Um, then then we take a little detour. Somehow we're talking about Coachella 2009 and Steve Aoki, who had a need to put on a, quote, damn show. And this is when he develops his trademark of throwing cake at the audience, Um
2: yeah, just one of the many things he was up to. He kind of describes the thought process, if you can call it that, of, of of what they ended up doing, where he was like, OK, well, get me some super soakers. Get me like a raft. Get me like a whole bunch of things. He's taking everything that he's ever seen at a punk and rock show over his last 15 years. And he's saying, OK, let's let's get, gather all these things and let's let's try it out. He's A-B testing the audience to see what works. And somehow the cake stuck.
0: It's a good thing he wasn't a big Gallagher fan Or we would have watermelons being smashed uh, On the crowd But with the crowds of the size he's playing You can only throw so much cake So it's not that big of a menace But let's hear our last track And this is David Guetta featuring a con Sexy Bitch I'm trying to find the words to describe this that was sexy bitch by david guetta featuring the r&b producer Akon. why'd we pick this one
2: Uh, it's just the bastard child of pop music and dance music distilled down into its worst tendencies
0: there you go there you go and um Matos actually shouts out Swedish House Mafia as the ones that uh could give Peter Cetera insulin shock. Uh that he said they exemplified the trend of EDM's blended out please everyone aspect. Um, but David Guetta is right in there with, with Swedish House Mafia, just tramping it up with hits like sexy bitch. And and as you mentioned earlier, he's got a bit from the record company which was just scratching their heads at what to do with David Guetta as an album artist. But then when he packaged this stuff for him, they realized, Oh, you're a hit single artist. And, um,
2: and it's funny, this is kind of like we, I remember episodes and episodes back, we talked about how, You know, live PAs would just play one track and then it would end and then start their next track. And then someone got the bright idea to like mix all the tracks together. And it was a revelation. And it's one of those basic things. This is a similar basic revelation that should have been obvious that, oh, you know, it's not always the singles sell the album. Sometimes it's just the singles sell the singles and like these are not album artists. Stop trying to make them album artists like you're, you're, you're stuck in this like 70s mentality where you're trying to make a dark side of the moon. And meanwhile, it should just you should just be releasing sexy bitch for people for a dollar and selling the ringtone.
0: Yeah, I mean, the KLF wrote a book about it in, in the early 90s, so it shouldn't be, uh, you know, that mysterious. But they finally figured it out. This is how we can get EDM on the American Pop Charts. And then and then he starts talking about Sidney Sampson, whose Dirty Dutch style is a hit. Um, and then his set slam banged with far more finesse than his colleagues. But he says Sampson wasn't oppositional. He wasn't a refusal. It was an affirmation of the status quo, as was Electric Daisy Carnival and EDM itself for a generation for whom house music has been lingua franca since birth. So, it's one of these things. By the time EDM won commercially, it was more of a coronation than uh, than a confrontation. It was was just the rightful king sort of taking the throne by this.
2: Yeah, thing. and and anybody could come and 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 have a part in it. You only had to sell out a little bit, <laughs> but they could if, if you if you just had a couple of those things. They had an interesting story about how the basement jack showed up. And they were scrambling to try and figure out what they could play that would be hard enough to please this audience that was going off to some of these ridiculous EDM bangers. And it's just that's kind of what what people ended up having to do. They had to play ball a bit. They had to go. They had to meet the intensity of what these guys were playing, which is, you know, that's why it was called Big Room is because this is music for a big room. It doesn't need to be subtle. It needs to be loud and it needs to have big drops. And uh, if you got a big drop, you can come and you can play for these people too. But you got to sell your soul a little bit and join. uh, Take some of those EDM elements and uh, bring them into yourself and hope that you don't lose yourself in the process.
0: Yeah, and this is very much analogous to like rocks move into stadiums in the early 70s when suddenly you had these barbarians at the gates like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath that – more sort of an affront to the, sen- the delicate sensibilities of the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and, and 60s artists that had, had dominated previously. When, once you're playing to these massive venues, you got to make the big gestures. And, you know, it's all Al Jolson, baby. You ain't seen nothing yet. You, none of this Bing Crosby subtlety and whispering into the microphone. This is big house music, big room music. Got to be big, big gestures. And Skrillex, of course, uh, is perfect for this. He's got, he's anointed. The King of Dub Stuff at his 3 a.m. set Saturday at Neon Garden. But the audience was not the Burning Man Bass Nectar crew, but rather their younger siblings. And this difference between Bass Nectar and Skrillex is pretty fascinating to me. It's kind of just the slightly underground version that then is just codified into perfect hard rock, essentially, for, for a whole new generation. And it's it's massive.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting how like certain things get deemed just not not a part of the larger scene and how Skrillex kind of gets left out of the uh, the UK dubstep uh, story and he kind of gets pushed out of the base scene as well. But again, he, he went off and he's making like really interesting house and electro stuff and, and, and all, all kind of mixed in with pop and stuff. So he doesn't care. He He doesn't need it. He's still doing fine
0: yeah no no worries no tears for skrillex and then uh, matos ends, ends the chapter with a couple of anecdotes it talks about kevin kerslake's electric daisy carnival experience documentary which appeared premiered in hollywood on july 27th of 20 was it 2011 or 2012 but 2011 anyway, i think of 2011 and and it's supposed to be just a, a low-key movie documentary debut but They put out word he was going to DJ and suddenly 10,000 people showed up to see the set and turns into a police riot and ends up with 500 screenings canceled. So the curse of Rave's ability to draw more attention than it needs to itself is still ongoing.
2: Yeah, we still got that snafu in our blood
0: yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean to track down this. Uh, fest. Have you seen the Electric Daisy Carnival experience?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty free form. It's like a, just a whole lot of footage from inside the party, a couple of people talking about stuff, some some sets. It's definitely it's it's an interesting watch. It's, it's what you would kind of imagine if you showed up at the festival and just kind of wandered through it for two hours. It's very free form. But it, uh, it gives you a uh, like in another 20 or 30 years, it's going to be fascinating because uh, like right now it's still it's still pretty representative of what you'd see now at Electric Daisy Carnival. But uh, it's kind of like when we went back and we watched that Disco Donnie documentary and that was like mid 90s rave and it was very different and weird. So it's, it's a very good time capsule for what like 2009 Electric Daisy Carnival raving looked like.
0: And then Mato sends the chapter by mentioning Disco Donnie and how he had been a partner of of Pascal Rotella at Electric Daisy Carnival, but they split after 2010, and Rotella sells out to Live Nation in 2011. So the machine uh, swallows it up. As soon as it's massively successful, uh, the corporate behemoth is there. And so, Ryan, we are coming to our last chapter next week is our last chapter and we'll be talking about the random access memories event in los angeles california january 26 2014 so for ryan harkness i'm nate wilcox and we're still talking about the underground is massive how electronic dance music conquered america by michelangelo matos
1: Follow the Letter Roll Podcast on Twitter at Letter Roll and check out our website at Letter Next week, Ryan and Nate finish the book with a look at random access memories from 2014. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.